Steve. Hello. Oh, <laughs> uh, help me. Help me, Steve. No, I know which Steve because I always Uh-oh. know which Steve because it's Steve Laddick. It has to be Steve Laddick. Of course, it's Steve Laddick. The returning triumph of Steve Laddick. We promised last week that you'd be on the show this week um, because we had that a little snafu last week. We recorded an impromptu episode doing some mailbag in which, ironically enough, we talked about Nixon's firing of the attorney general. <laughs> we received, Indeed. And we received a follow-up note from listener Philip. Oh, really? We had this listener who wrote us about, we had talked about the Saturday Night Massacre, then a, a listener wrote us an email about it. We talked more about it. He then wrote back again after this most recent episode saying, you know, oh, it's funny and we actually agree and thank you. And, uh, but uh, gosh, it's all sort of irrelevant. Uh, not really. <laughs> not after Monday. It's amazing. It's amazing how much stuff that I used to think was irrelevant is now incredibly relevant. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like Star Wars Episode Eight: The Return of the Irrelevancy. <laughs> and it, you know, one thing we can talk about maybe conceptually after I, I wanted to kind of go through some of the more obvious things that you've been the, the particular issues, some of the obvious particular issues that have come up on which you've written helpfully, I think, to try to clarify things. And then also just conceptually, you know, how much of our law, administrative, constitutional, and otherwise, like, is geared toward preventing the worst thing from happening? Like, there seems right. to be a balance, right? I mean, the, the more that you design a system to prevent the worst things from happening, the less you're able to take advantage of some of the great things that can happen, you know, when you remove constraints. And boy, the, the pendulum seems to have swung on the desirability of one or the other right now, right? In a, in a big fat hurry. And I reached out to Steve to to join us before a lot of the recent events had taken place because it, I thought it would be interesting and useful given the cases that the court had already put on its docket this term, the Supreme Court of the United States had already put on its docket to talk with Steve about sort of due process norms and due process as a as a construct in these important cases, some of which involve immigration, some of which involve extraterritorial use of U.S. force. And so, so these issues are issues that, that have been in, in the air and on the court's docket this term already, like long before November's election, long before the events of the last week and et cetera. And you know a great place to hear more about this? Do you know a great place? I, I don't. Uh, Steve's National Security Law podcast that he just launched with Bobby Chesney. Cool. What is it called? <laughs> it's called the National Security Law Podcast. That is a you great. Know, that is a great name for it. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, oral argument was taken. <laughs> it was. You're damn right, it was. Well, but so what I love about the show, I've listened to two episodes. I've already left a review. It hasn't shown up yet, um, but it it's uh, it has some of the same conceit as this show, right? Which is just two people talking who sometimes disagree. And I would say that your show is maybe a little bit more focused than ours, certainly more focused on national security law. But so far, the first two episodes have been like half an hour long and just chock full of uh, of information. And, you know, and there's been a lot to process and actually less disagreement than one might, you know, than I expect you guys expect will be the overall like equilibrium of the show because so much terrible stuff has happened. Mm. Uh, but I also have to say that the show does somewhat challenge my listening at 2x. Mm, yeah, because because we, talk, we talk too fast. No, you don't talk too fast. I mean, look, I'm listening to it at 2x. I've got no one but myself to blame, but but I but I manage it, but I manage it. But if you listen to 2x, they're like, you know, 15, 18 minutes a pop, and you're like chock full of 
of Steve Vladek and Bobby Chesney information. It's a it's quite quite the information bomb. I, I'm more of a 1.5x kind of guy. <laughs> Me too. I tell you, once you once you get a two x, you'll never go back. But <laughs> so I've got. I, I don't know how you guys want to do this. Should we start with the executive orders? However you want. I mean, we could talk about the cases at the court that the court's already hearing. Uh, the executive order that's a more current event. Uh, the reason I think the cases are, are in a way more interesting is because the court is going to have to decide what to do. And the way mm-hmm. that it decides those cases and writes those cases is going to influence how the events that are, that are underway right now are going to unfold. You're talking about the airport cases, the uh, cases he, that began as the airport cases. Correct. The, yeah. the, the most recent stuff, w- which happened in the aftermath of the issuing of the executive order last Friday, uh, undoubtedly is going to generate judicial output, additional judicial output. There's been some already. But but the Supreme Court cases that are, that are pending, and one of them is a cert petition, the Castro case, as I understand it, is not been yep. granted. Uh, nevertheless, the, the, the other cases that they have before them will allow them to, depending on what they decide and how they explain it, allow them to weigh in in ways that seem kind of important to the airport material and other stuff as well. What, do you have a sense for that, Steve? I mean, so I, I think I share your view. I mean, I wrote I wrote a long post about a week before inauguration, trying to basically suggest to everybody that you know the emoluments clause is fun to talk about and it's an interesting academic exercise. And if the Republicans in Congress ever actually decide that they're done with Trump, it will surely be the ground on which they impeach him. But the actual constitutional questions that I really lose sleep over, you know, on the eve of the Trump inauguration and in the early weeks of the Trump administration, were always going to be about the constitutional rights of non-citizens. Because um, it seemed to me that was always going to be where there was the most dramatic um, break from past U.S. practice. And I, I, I wish I could say that the executive order surprised me in this regard, but it didn't, which is part of why I think those Supreme Court cases that in many ways are already teeing up the constitutional questions implicated by the executive order, I guess with the exception of the religion question, um, you know, Joe, I think that's why that's where I, that's where my brain started when I was thinking about these questions. Yeah, they seem to get a lot of mileage out of this idea that whatever, uh, whatever the status, and I think after some of the Guantanamo litigation, it, it's clear that, you know, non-citizens, uh, I- immigrants have due process rights in a whole bunch of situations. It was clear before that, but, well, but there's, what's held on is this idea that at the border, the rights are only what are contained in the statute and what the executive gives you. And that's what they seem to be getting a lot of mileage out of in the, what they tried to in the executive order. I think they will fail, but that's, that's the leverage point, it seems. I mean, I think the short answer, Christian, I think you're right. I think the short answer is that there is an inherent inconsistency and a built-in tension between the decades and in some cases centuries-old Supreme Court decisions recognizing the plenary power of the government at the border and these more modern cases going in both directions to confer at least some constitutional protections on non-citizens outside the border, and also, you know, frankly, to confer some protections on those who are out of status, but who are inside the United States. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, the Supreme Court has never had to explain itself um, or try to reconcile these more recent cases with the, you know, the old chestnuts, the Chinese exclusion case. Um, Mazai, Knopf versus Shaughnessy, all those you know, 1950s are immigration cases. And I think they were already in a position because of the cases before them this term where they were going to have to grapple with that. The immigration executive order now just raises the stakes 
of of how they answer those questions. And so, so you know, what we're really picking up on here is what has long been the great unanswered question in immigration law, which is is the plenary power doctrine dead? Um, you know, I think the executive order is premised on the notion that the answer is no, that it's very much alive and kicking. And I think there are a lot of folks who, even before November, would have argued otherwise, and now especially so. Hmm. And I guess a contrast that, or, or, or a related point that might be hanging in the air is that uh, prior to uh, the Supreme Court's decision in Boumediene, you might have thought that there was great you know, strength to the argument that, of course, there's no habeas right that uh, pertains to non-citizens uh, under our physical control uh, in the naval base in Guantanamo, and and yet the court held to the contrary. Uh, so I guess people might be thinking, well, I wonder how that would, I wonder how a similar dynamic might work here, right? I think it's a grappling with like the, the, you know, the the absolutist doctrines about executive power at the border and the relative poverty of rights of of non-citizens, you know, arose at a time, first of all, where the world was less, where people traveled less, you know, across borders. And, and you know, there wasn't nearly as much uh, immigration for work. I mean, you had these mass immigration waves that people dealt with that drove these scares, but also consistent with that, the racist origins of some, like the belief in, yep. in racial and national origin essentiality, right? That drove, and, and, and that has been like culturally dead for decades. And then you read stories in the Post and the Times about Steve Bannon's musings in the White House and about, you know, how we don't want to turn into these, we don't want these multi-generational neighborhoods fomenting Muslim terrorism in American cities. And and so there's a revival of this idea that, that a rational government could have preferences about the racial, ethnic, national origin makeup of its citizenry. I think that's right. And I would add one more factor. I think the, I think the rise of that nationalistic and, and religiously infused mentality is part of it. I also think, frankly, that part of the Supreme Court's intervention in recent years into areas where historically they had been less inclined to intervene is entirely a reaction to the perceived breakdown in classical separation of powers and in the notion that Congress as an institution would check the president as an institution, regardless of the partisan politics of the particular issue. Um, I think there's no way to understand Boumediene as at least not having some thread of the Supreme Court worrying about the political branches, just cutting them, cutting the courts out of the loop. And then the question becomes whether these cases this term, which are not, don't quite present the same stakes with the possible exception of Castro, um, the habeas case where the cert petition is pending, you know, is the court going to see it the same way? And, and and let's be real, by the court, we really just mean, is Justice Kennedy going to see it the same way? Yeah. And, and, and realistically, I actually think the answer changed on November 8th. I, I think that all of these cases became more likely to come out in the immigrants and non-citizens and plaintiffs' favor um, the day Trump was elected, entirely because Justice Kennedy is not immune to those kinds of considerations, and they will surely be weighing on his mind you know, as he's thinking about what to do. I mean, listen, Jennings is a great example. Jennings is a case where the court now is receiving, is in the middle of receiving supplemental briefing on how the Constitution applies to the detention of immigrants. They're receiving this briefing as folks are being held in airports, Mm -hmm. Um, right? So, you know, I actually think that um, the election of Donald Trump could, you know, 
for all of the other effects it's going to have and has already had, have a salutary effect on the doctrine because the separation of powers concern, um, the notion that the courts are the only institution standing between the U.S. government and legal black holes, now, I think is, is now front and center in all of these cases. Jennings is the one where you have people who are, are being uh, held pending possible deportation Yep. And they're asking for regular six-month proceedings where the review has to be they have their status has to be reviewed, so we can determine should we still be holding them uh, without bail, I guess, pending their deportation. And the Ninth Circuit decided it on a statutory theory about what the statute required, uh, and the court heard argument on that already and was skeptical that that's what the statute meant, and so they asked for this supplemental briefing about the constitutionality of. The right. approach. Do I have that right? You have that exactly right, Joe. And and the thing is, you know, it's it's if we were coming to Jennings as this sort of pure, you know, unmarred by doctrine, law students or legal scholars trained in the art of statutory interpretation, there'd be a lot behind the court's apparent skepticism with how the Ninth Circuit read the statutes. You know, there's not a ton of super ambiguous phrasing in the relevant statutory provisions. Um, you know, the Ninth Circuit in some places was basically just reading into the statute, a review scheme that's not there. But, you know, in the immigration field, especially, this is old hat for the Supreme Court. I mean, courts have, you know, since 1996, since the the, the sort of dual edged sword of um, EDPA, the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act, and IRERA, the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act, which raised a ton of new constitutional questions as Congress tried to simultaneously restrict the rights of immigrants and restrict the ability of courts to enforce them. Courts started, including the Supreme Court, reading these statutes at times entirely implausibly um, to avoid the grave constitutional questions they'd otherwise raise. The most famous example, guys, of course, is the St. Cyr case from 2001. Yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah. Right, where the Supreme Court takes a statute, the title of which is Elimination of Custody Review by Habeas Corpus, <laughs> and concludes that Congress was insufficiently clear about whether the, t- the provision in that section was meant to apply to habeas. Right. Um, you know, Justice Scalia's dissent in here is absolutely right that the majority was requiring a super clear statement. But there's a reason why in this context, the courts have required super clear statements. And so, you know, Jennings is a really powerful example of how that plays out. Um, I should say, by the way, just because it may not be obvious to any one of them, you guys, I am biased and conflicted all up the yin yang here. <laughs> I, um, I was on an amicus brief in support of the petitioners in Jennings. Ironically, um, at, the, at the original argument stage, trying to say to the Supreme Court, hey, guys, there are a ton of constitutional problems here if you don't read the statute the way the Ninth Circuit did. Um, yeah. I guess we, we failed to persuade them. <laughs> you, could call it, you could call it bias or... But it's not conflict. I mean, the reason you're on those briefs is the you know same a lot reason that you're saying the things that you're saying now. Right? Well, well yeah. and also, you know a lot about it. So we could talk to someone who knew a lot about it uh, and was helping the party on the other side. And maybe at some point we'll do that. But. Well, I'm just mindful of, of always trying to disclose when I'm part of a case that I'm talking about. Right. Sure. Cool. Fair enough. Fair enough. Which yes. is true for, for three of the four big. I mean, so I'm, I'm on the amicus brief in Jennings. Um, I was on an amicus brief in the Third Circuit in Castro. And I'm actually one of the lawyers um, in, in the Hernandez versus Mesa cross-border shooting case. Just, just so that's out there for everybody. <laughs> Understood. It's on the record. So the real question, I think, is not just how do these four cases play out in the abstract. I think the real question is, as you have this you know, emergency litigation 
going on all over the country over the executive order, how might that, how might those headlines influence the justices as they are, frankly, having conference on at least some of these cases as they're receiving briefs on some of these cases and as they're, you know, beginning to prepare opinions. And and then, I mean, the arrow goes in that direction, but it also goes in the other direction, right? They might be influenced by uh, press coverage of these events as they unfold in real time. And I mean, um, amazing numbers of things happen every day. And, and in addition, uh, as those things might inform the way they craft their uh, opinions and, and the conclusions they actually reach and how much they want to dig into the issue rather than uh, kick the can down the road just a little bit further and, and wait for another case, um, then that the case that results, of course, will affect the way these disputes are litigated going forward. If there are, if there are appeals from these orders that have been entered, if there are, f- are further lawsuits filed, uh, those will be adjudicated under some of the principles that the justices establish in the cases pending before them right now. Oh, I think that's, I think that's exactly right, Joe. And, and, and I, I would actually even take it one step further, which is to say, you know, I got, I've got a bunch of sort of emails or phone calls from reporters saying, you know, do you think these airport cases could go to the Supreme Court? And my response is, you know, in a very important way, the airport cases are already before the Supreme Court, um, at least on some of the, you know, due process questions um, that if you if you conclude that the executive order is consistent with the president's statutory authority is the next sort of step of the of the analysis. And they do seem, you know, the facts as we have seen them unfold on the ground over the last week do seem like they are pushing all of kind of Justice Kennedy's libertarian <laughs> buttons in a way, right? I mean, he's like, I mean, it's it's totally explicable that he is on immigration. He has been a great balancer, right? I mean, he's been in favor of, of not being absolutist, in favor of counting immigrants' kind of human rights and weighing them against, you know, conceitedly valid governmental interests and efficiency, you know, the Matthews against Eldridge test and this, uh, and otherwise being a, a balancer on these sorts of things and not an absolutist. And so if I had to, that's my kind of, you know, the only kind of view I ever have is like 30,000 feet view of it. But I think if you, to the, the, the way that these airport cases may be influencing him is that he is, to the extent you do that balance of government interest and risk of erroneous deprivation and, and individual interest, I think these cases make that individual interest seem clearer and the governmental interest seem more suspect precisely because we see, you know, through all the kind of extraneous evidence, what's not on the face of the executive order. I think anybody who's looking at it knows that, that certain kinds of immigrants, namely Muslim ones, have a target on them. In this administration, and I think well, that and, offends, and in yeah. one respect, Christian, and in one respect, it is on the face of the executive order. I mean, I think it's it worth is, stressing yeah. that yeah. you know the I think it's Section Five B of the order has an express exception for religious minorities, right, from the seven Muslim majority countries identified in the order. Um, and, and we don't know whether that will apply to um, to minority Muslim sects within a within a country. Although Trump has clarified in numerous appearances that he's mainly concerned with. Christian minorities. And he's literally, I mean, he's yeah, literally he tweeted it. to that effect. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, his tweets actually provide a nice record. I wonder if the, I wonder if we could get his tweets in the Federal Register. It certainly helps to clarify. <laughs> there actually, so there actually is eventually going to have to be litigation about whether his tweets are covered by the Presidential Records Act. Because he deleted one, right? Yep. Which, which, if it's covered by the Presidential Records Act, would be a violation of the Presidential Records Act. Oh, man, oh the, the, amount of, <laughs> the amount of litigation. Uh, let me go back to the Kennedy point, because I think this okay. is actually a really important, uh, a really important thread. I, I think you're right that Jennings 
Um, this is the detention case where the court is is prompted to answer all these big and weighty due process questions about how long the government can hold um, those who are subject to removal before they're removed. I think Jennings does touch all of the Kennedy heartstrings, right? Um, right, the way that the way that folks would want. But on the flip side, it is not clear to me um, that the two damages cases, Abbasi and my case, Hernandez, touch the Kennedy heartstrings. Um, and, you know, even though I think Castro, the habeas case, um, is a direct affront to Kennedy's opinion for the court in Boumediene, it's a lot easier to, to, to deny cert than to affirm that on the merits. And so, you know, there are four different cases here with, in my view, enormous implications. There's only one where it's quite clear to me that what's been going on the last, you know, 12, 13 days, um, really the last, you know, week since the executive order is likely to tilt Kennedy decisively in what to me at least is the right direction, which is to say in favor of the immigrants. Um, the other three, I think, are much harder because of some of his other doctrinal and, and, and philosophical commitments. Now, we're not going to get a window into that in the sense that oral argument in Jennings has already taken place. They've requested supplemental briefing, which completes next week, I think, in the replies. And so we're just going to wait and the decision is going to be what it's going to be. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think the other possibility, which would not be unusual, especially now that it looks like there's going to be a ninth justice sometime this year, um, they'll hold it for over. them. Yeah, they'll hold it over, and they'll yeah. set it for re-argument in October. Wow. Um, right. Which, which you know, which they could do for either or both of two reasons, which is new briefs might justify a new argument um, and a new justice. So you know, I'm not, I'm not. Conv- Jennings, I think, is is in many ways the case most likely to come out positively from the perspective of the rights of non-citizens. But I think it might also, I think it's also possible it's going to be the one in which we hear from the court last. Um, hmm. In contrast to Abbasi, where we get a, you know, a ruling any time, um, reversing the decision below and throwing out the damages suit arising out of the post 9-11 roundup of Muslim and Arab immigrants in New York. Um, Hernandez, which is going to be argued on February 21st and decided by June. Um, and Castro, where, of course, they could deny cert. So, I, you know, I, it's right that these cases to me are the much bigger legal story than the airport cases. Um, I just I'm not as convinced, Christian, that that Kennedy is everywhere we want him to be on each of these cases, I guess is what I, is, guess is, a, is a very sort of pithy way to put it. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to. Um... I don't suggest there's anything like, you know, sometimes I, I feel like people talk about Kennedy, like he can, has no center and can be pushed around. Or, and I, I think it's ridiculous. Like he has commitments. Sometimes they are commitments to balancing. And so he's can be portrayed as kind of squishy. Uh, but, you know, I think here he has the kinds of commitments which events can influence precisely because they are sensitive to the position between a sovereign with power and someone without power, which I think is oh, I entirely appropriate. I, 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 and I completely agree with that. I think the question is just how does that play out in, these cases. in all these cases? Yeah. So, because yeah. the, I mean, the other thing that's worth saying about Jennings is Jennings could also be a dud where after getting the constitutional briefing and after staring into the abyss of a huge <laughs> constitutional ruling, the court says, oh, you know, the Ninth Circuit statutory analysis looks increasingly attractive to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can... We can settle this case without um, reaching out into the executive order right. if we just affirm or more likely dig, right? Dismiss certiorari is improvidently granted 
um, on the theory that they'd rather just, you know, say nothing. So, and if that's this, if that's what happens, the the signal that that would send, I would think, if that's what happens, is that uh, it would be a real shot in the arm for anyone who's thinking of using an avoidance strategy in any other case in the near future. <laughs> They'll think, yeah, the, the, the Supreme Court just ra- after getting additional briefing on the constitutional question and looking at, you know, square in the face, decided eh, not so much for us with that. <laughs> so, I mean, I think, I think, that, I think Joe, that's right if they affirm, right? If, if we get a, a 5-3 yeah. or 6-2 majority opinion affirming on constitutional avoidance, I completely agree. If they dig, it's harder. Um, cause then all you have is the ninth circuit, which, you know, most of the circuits don't treat as precedential anyway. Um, and, and I don't know. And then, and then that leaves the airport cases or these new cases that are about the sort of longer term consequence of the executive order as the place where that's much more likely to be, you know, the decisive question. Um, and it, it raises the likelihood that it's those cases that eventually get to the Supreme court and force them to to struggle with the constitutional questions. What do you think about the constitutional questions in the airport cases? So, I, I, you know, I think it's hard to generalize, Christian, because I think we have to be careful to separate out three different sets of constitutional questions and at least four categories of non-citizens. So that, that's just 12 boxes. We've got time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's start drawing a chart. No. Um, so so let, let, let's just say I, I think it's a no-brainer that as applied to lawful permanent residents, green card holders, the entire executive order is unconstitutional. And they just recently clarified, right, through memo. Through a memo. Yeah. This, is now the, this is now the third different position that the White yeah. House has taken in six days on the executive order. Just finish this sentence, unconstitutional because? Um, unconstitutional because as LPRs, um, these individuals have vested procedural and substantive due process rights to both travel, to leave the country, and to come back, and to not be deprived of their status without fairly rigorous process. Um, so I think it's a it's a sort of double fisted violation of the due process clause um, as applied to them. Conceptually, when they when a when an LPR shows up at the border, the government isn't making an admission decision at that point. That's right. They're because they've already back. made one. Yeah, they've already made one. And so this idea that the government's ba- uh, powers at the border are close to plenary, even if you don't think it, ble- you know, even if you don't think it's totally plenary, it just doesn't apply in this case. And so the due process. Right. Yeah, go ahead. Right. An LPR at the border is much more like a citizen at the border than another non-citizen. Right. And and, and that's been true doctrinally for decades. Um, so so I think for LPRs, the, there's a double fisted due process argument. There's also the one overarching establishment clause argument, which I'm just going to bracket for a second. But this is the big one. This is a big one. I All right. Think. Well, then I won't bracket it. No, no, no. no. Go, go into the other ones and we'll come back to this. Yeah. Well, so, so then the question, guys, becomes for, for non-citizens with varying degrees of legal immigration status between LPR and what the law calls an arriving alien, that is to say someone who has no prior connections to the United States, um, the question is how those same two due process concerns mesh out. And the short answer is it's a spectrum, um, because Christian right, because we balance. Right. Um, and, and I think the short, the short version is the closer to LPRs folks are, so you know, folks who have been here for a long time, folks who aren't here on temporary visas, but in some kind of permanent status, the more you're going to have the same two due process objections. So, so you're saying, and just to clarify, I mean, because you know, yeah. I know I don't even have at my fingertips all the different kinds of visas, but someone here on a kind of a longer term student visa or work visa will be treated differently than someone on a tourist visa. Yes, but even and then but then there are folks who aren't even here on visas, right? I mean, asylees, for example, if you yeah. 
right? If you if you are someone who has been admitted into this country because the government has determined that you're entitled that you're eligible for and entitled to asylum, that's not a renewable determination, right? There's not there's not some time period where you have to go back to the government and say, hey, am I still good? Um, unlike a visa, right? All visas expire eventually. Interesting. So, right. So, so there are actually. I mean, I don't. I don't know the exact number, but it's 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 in the dozens of different classes of status, um, right? All the way from citizen to LPR, all the way down to someone who has never been here before with no contacts and no connections to the United States. And there's no concrete answer to where going down that chain the due process violations cease. Um, but I think that we all probably agree that at least based on the doctrine, it's somewhere that, that by the time you get to the bottom of the chain, folks with no prior connections or contacts to the United States, um, the case law at least suggests that they do not have due process rights in how the government decides whether to admit them into the country or not. Yeah, that hasn't been clear to me whether they have none, which I find implausible, or what they have is only the right to statutory treatment, what the statutes provide. Well, I mean, that, I mean, those in this context, Christian, those may be the same. Thing. I, I think um, they are then, the same, but but at least right. it, you know, it's it's conceivable that if you think there are due process rights, and that those due process rights are equivalent to what is provided in the statutes, there could at least be some arguing about interpretations of those statutes that might be different if there were no due process rights at all. I guess that's right. I mean, I mean, I guess another way to think about it is if I've never been to the United States, but I go to the consulate in my, I, I'm I'm a, I'm a Yemeni. Uh, national, and I go to the consulate in Sanaa, and I get a, you know, let's say a, a short-term tourist visa um, or some other short-term visa. Um, there's a question about whether the initial determination by the government to give me a visa has actually created a vested right, um, the deprivation of which now implicates my, you know, some kind of of property or liberty interest, um, right? So, so Christian, right, that whether the statutory entitlement to the visa in turn, create some kind of very limited due process right. Um, I think that's a viable claim. I'm not sure that the courts are going to be in a hurry to recognize it, given just how desultory the courts, <laughs> the Supreme Court's precedents have been about non-citizens in that context. And frankly, they may not need to, right, because of the other issues. I was thinking less about vesting than I was about shading interpretations more in, in, in great more greatly in favor of immigrants than you might ordinarily in statutory analysis because of the process right and that's a dominant feature of immigration law yeah. i mean you know i think you know there's it is it, it would be a real sin for an administrative law professor um to teach admin through the lens of immigration law because the rules are so much less mm-hmm. deferential to the agency because of what's at stake i mean because you know often what's at stake because of what to say, but also because of the track record. I mean, I think, you know, when I was clerking, we had a couple of cases um, where the Board of Immigration Appeals, this is obviously right, the, the last sort of reviewing process in the executive branch before a case goes to the circuit, um, affirmed decisions by immigration judges that were literally incomprehensible. Yeah. <laughs> right. Same, same experience. Right. And so and so I think and and, you know, I mean, not to not to tie this to Judge Gorsuch, but I think you see this in his um, increasingly well sort of publicized attacks on Chevron, which have primarily been in immigration cases, um, right, where I think there's there's this, this historical pattern of not trusting the administrative process quite as much. The harder part, right, guys, is these older cases taking such a dim view of the Constitution. So I say all of that just to sort of build up to what is the constitutional elephant in the room, um, 
which is the Establishment Clause. Can I ask which, a, can I? Yeah, sorry, Jeff. I, I want to not look at the elephant for just a moment longer. Don't think of the elephant. Don't, Don't think, think of, of an elephant. Nope. I'm always in the room and no one sees me. <laughs> <laughs> it is. I do feel sad for the guy. Uh, here's, here's what sounds, it might be a very foolish question, so feel free to tell me that. Part of what I struggle with in thinking about the issues that, that we've been discussing is the following. Due process uh, expressed in the Fifth Amendment uh, is a constraint on government behavior. Uh, it's, a, it's a constraint on state action. So in one sense, if you ask the question, you know, who is the due process clause for? What is it really about? Uh, you're, you would focus on whether or not the government actor had done something improper. And it would it would matter a lot less who the complaining party was, I right? Like, can hmm. I finish? No, damn, <laughs> you've been terrible about that lately. Um, the it, it, it Joe would, likes to talk un, un, uninterrupted if you for can. a second. It would matter a lot less who the complaining person was, uh, given that the focus is a, a standard of behavior of. Of, and you can articulate it, uh, I'm sure, in many, many, many different ways about making sure you're providing the process that is due and not falling below a certain minimum necessary standard, which is sort of how I think about the substantive component. Uh, but of course, you might think of it quite differently and say, ah, you know, it, it matters a lot who the complaining party is because th the way we think about process being proper turns so much on the issues that are at stake, the factual situation in which that person finds him or herself. And so you can't really talk about the government actor's behavior without heavily contextualizing it in connection with the nature of the complaining party and that person's complaint. So if, if a student in your class asks you, like, who is this due process thing really for? Who's it really about? Uh, what, how would you answer them? Under current doctrine or, or more theoretically? Either way. How about well, both? I mean, I mean, listen, I, I am a big believer in the notion, and, and what I always would have seen as an originalist notion, that the purpose of the Bill of Rights was to constrain the federal government, and that the principal orientation of the Bill of Rights was to rein in the government in contexts um, in which it may not have mattered who the subjects of the government action were. Um, and so that's why I've always been baffled by the deeply entrenched theme in the Supreme Court's jurisprudence where subjects differ in just how well they're protected by the Constitution. And, and guys, this goes beyond citizens versus non-citizens. You know, the insular cases, these early 20th century decisions holding that a whole bunch of, you know, pretty important constitutional protections didn't apply in a bunch of American territories are still on the books. Um, Right. You know, American Samoans, the D.C. Circuit ruled um, in 2015, um, aren't entitled to birthright citizenship under the 14th Amendment. So, you know, there's a there's to me a fundamental disconnect in the purpose of the Bill of Rights and of all of these sort of structural, you know, constraints on the government, and the Constitution and the Supreme Court's jurisprudence, which has for the better part of 120 years. Um, treated different subjects of government action differently based upon their status and their relationship to the country. The reason that the reason that I don't think the question is sport is because I know that in the last week and in the future, we're, one can hear a lot of rhetoric about, well, you know, of course, people who don't live in the United States don't have United States rights. 
you, you moron. Why would you even think that they did? And, and I think the reason a person could think that they do is because the, the question isn't about who has the right, it's about who's being constrained. And it, in both no, so instances, it's the United States government. Joe, I agree. I agree. And this is, and this is, and so then the question becomes when you have these rare cases um, where the courts say, oh, this provision is different because it's not an individual right, it is a constraint on the government. Do we really buy the distinction? So, you know, Boumediene is a great example. I mean, Boumediene was argued along two different theories. Boumediene, of course, is right, the 2008 um, Supreme Court decision holding that non citizens at Guantanamo were protected by the suspension clause. And one of the threads of Justice Kennedy's majority opinion is that habeas isn't like the rest of the Constitution. The suspension clause was meant as a structural constraint on the government. So therefore, it should constrain the government wherever the government purports to detain, um, which, by the way, to me, makes perfect sense, as I argued in a 2007 <laughs> Law Review article that nobody <laughs> reads. Um, but, but then Kennedy, and, and Christian, this is where I, I get off the Kennedy is consistent train. Um, yeah. Then Kennedy makes this move toward why Guantanamo was territori- territorially unique, um, which messes up the whole structural argument. Because, it does, it does, yeah. Right, because then he goes into this whole riff on the unique nature of the sovereignty and control that the U.S. exercised over Guantanamo, which, if the whole theory was that the suspension clause was unique and limited the government wherever it was detaining people, should have been irrelevant. Um, and indeed, it's that very sort of line that's coming back to dominate the briefing in Hernandez in the cross-border shooting case. So, you know, Joe, I, I'm with you analytically and intuitively. I just, you know, the Supreme Court has never accepted that outside maybe half of Boumedian. And, and this is where, you know, things come full circle, maybe for the Establishment Clause, um, right? And that's, that's why I think the Establishment Clause elephant is actually um, visible in this case. I see it. Where There it is. Why yeah. don't you describe it more? <laughs> Well, I, look, can I, so the, the control point, um, I, there's a part of that analysis, which I think is correct, that the, the, the context of the detention matters in, in terms of where it is, what kind of control the U.S. has. Because I think ultimately all of these doctrines, uh, the, the related due process doctrines, because I don't think there's only one, are about like, what do we as a people think is appropriate for governments to do vis-a-vis, our government to do vis-a-vis other human beings? in different contexts. And I think the whole kind of technology of the Matthews balancing test, for example, is an attempt to be sensitive. I mean, it is a, like all such balancing test is a, is a seizing of control in the judiciary saying, this is the kind of thing we're good at. Right. Uh, and, and so when we look at what our government is doing to another person and we are asked directly to analyze the propriety of that treatment, um, it's, uh, both on a procedural level and a substantive level, we are going to be sensitive to just how badly hurt that person is, maybe their status, what the government's needs are, which are related to that status, and also the uh, um, uh, the, the possibilities of that situation, which is why that old case, Eisentrager, right, was basically discarded in the Guantanamo cases, because you don't have to call generals back from the battlefield to, you know, to, uh, anymore. And you don't, and no one is suggesting that in the middle of a firefight, you have to give the enemies that you're shooting due process rights in the sense that you have to but also, Mirandize them or something. Well, and Christian, keep in mind in Eisentrader, you had 21 plaintiffs who had been convicted by a U.S. military commission, right? They right, had actually right. received legal process. Um, 
And Jackson spends a long time in Eisentrager explaining why that military commission had jurisdiction, which at that point abates the argument, right, that they were subjected to some kind of, you know, lawless system. So, But the whole, I, the whole I, I question would, in the early Guantanamo cases is whether Article Three courts have, a, have the authority to pronounce on, what the, on whether there should even be such commissions and on what the minimum criteria for such no, commissions No, I, I agree. Is, yeah. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, so, so I would be with you um, all the way up until we get to target and killing. Yeah. Where, you know, where the courts just don't seem to have any interest um, in thinking about why and how the Constitution ought to constrain, um, you know, these these strikes overseas. And I say that, you know, right the same week as yet another U.S. citizen was killed in a drone in, in a in a kinetic operation. Yeah. Right. In a sort of quasi battlefield in Yemen. So um, what what is the view on that? I actually don't know it. I mean, I did read Obama's uh, the kind of. 12th hour release of kind of the r- rules of the road on this stuff that uh, they released in December. Is that when they released it? You know what I'm talking yep. about? Uh, yep, yep, yep. Um, it, it have, I, I, this is my ignorance, but have suits been filed where the courts have found that they have no jurisdiction, kind of like this kind of pre Guantanamo detainee notion of, of courts, or have they found that the, that, that there's a separation of powers reason that they can't exit? What's, what's the status of drone strike litigation? So there's there's a if the plaintiffs are non-citizens, um, there's a real problem in the form of um, 28 U.S.C. Section 2241E2, which is the non-habeas jurisdiction stripping provision of the 2006 Military Commissions Act, which takes away federal jurisdiction over claims arising out of or incident to um, detention and potentially right other forms of force against um, any individual determined to be an enemy combatant, right? So there's the prospect that that could be invoked if you had a non-citizen suing. Um, there's been one effort, obviously, in the Anwar al-Awlaki case, um, where it was a U.S. citizen who was targeted and who was killed to involve the courts. I should say there were two efforts. There was an effort to um, bring a, lit- a lawsuit before al-Awlaki was killed, once it was clear that he was on the so-called kill list. Um, that claim was dismissed by D.C. District Judge Don Bates as being non-justiciable. After Alaki was killed, um, his family brought a, a Bivens claim um, in the district court. Um, and Judge, I think it was Judge Caller Catelli, um, threw out that case, um, not because it was non-justiciable, um, but based on two, in my view, completely incoherent constitutional holdings. One that the Fourth Amendment doesn't apply to targeted killing um, because it's not a search and it's not really a seizure, um, <laughs> even though there's decades of case law suggesting that lethal force is a seizure for Fourth Amendment purposes. I would think. Yeah. Um, and then you, you, you might even call of, it the ultimate seizure. <laughs> uh, you could call it the ultimate seizure, although I would not name this podcast that. Um, right. Um, and then the second, and then she just sort of, you know, mucked her way through the Fifth Amendment analysis to basically say there's nothing here to suggest that his due process rights were violated. So, you know, I, I think, Christian, it's, it, the paucity of plaintiffs slash victims who have clearly established constitutional rights have chilled that litigation. Um, and I wish it hadn't, because it's not at all clear to me that those claims are non-justiciable, especially after the fact, right? The harder questions, I think, are whether that jurisdiction stripping statute applies um, and whether there's any merit, right? Whether there, there's a constitutional claim for a non-citizen who had no prior connections to the U.S. And if not, whether at least there's some claim that 
the strikes weren't authorized. It just gets into the messiness of of conflict these days. I mean, you know, if if there were if there were trenches with our forces in one trench and and enemy forces in another trench in a declared war, and you had a suddenly emergency stay applic or you know an emergency temporary restraining order application uh, into the courts from the enemies in the other trench. I mean, everybody knows what would happen with that lawsuit, right? But now. Everything is everything is going through the through the keyhole of the authorization for the use of military force, right? And, yeah. And and so it's like a war. So it's like we're in trenches, and and maybe the people on the other side of the line are are not in a in, in a trench. Uh, in, but, instead, but, they're in a house me, somewhere. Yeah. Let, let me let, let me sort of let me resist the premise in one important respect. I don't think it is as clear as everyone wants it to be that the courts had nothing to say about these kinds of claims during bigger more obvious, more conventional wars. I mean, and there's a great case exemplar in this regard. Um, so Gaetano Torito was a U.S. citizen who fought on behalf of the Italian army and against the United States during World War II. Um, and he's captured as a prisoner of war and he's held in a POW camp as a POW. And he brings a habeas petition, or I mean, not him, but you know, family members and lawyers on his behalf, bring a habeas petition arguing that as a U.S. citizen, he wasn't subject to POW detention. Um, and the courts did not throw out his case as being non-justiciable. Um, what they did was they said, listen, on the merits, just because you're a U.S. citizen doesn't mean that you're beyond the scope of detention authority under the Declaration of War Against Italy. Um, you know, the result hmm. is the same, but I actually think that's a pretty significant assertion of judicial power um, in a context in which, you know, the answer was just, yeah, we can hear this case. And yeah, you're an idiot. Go back to your POW camp. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not clear to me. I'm very skeptical. I think you both know of sort of generalized claims of a lack of judicial competence, um, in the national security space, even in the context of, you know, sensitive challenges to to military detention and and uses of force. I, I really think that we have so many examples to the contrary of courts that are competent to handle these cases are able to answer the questions of these cases are inevitably going to lean on the government side, but maybe that's actually the right thing, um, yeah. but not, but not sort of categorically close their doors. And so, you know, I, I, for one would fight with every fiber of my being and the notion that there's some class of cases that's just entirely beyond the judicial ken because they're war related. It's an assumption of incompetence, which seems to have fallen away. Ye- yes and no. I mean, except then you have, you know, um, none other than Judge Harvey Wilkinson writing in 2012 that the reason why there ought not to be Bivens for, you know, allegations that U.S. citizens were tortured while detained as enemy combatants um, is because courts aren't competent to review the legality of that context. Um, You have a district court decision from last year where Judge Jerry Lee in the Eastern District of Virginia holds that it's a political question whether Iraqi nationals were tortured at Abu Ghraib because it's really hard to figure out what torture is. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there aren't really clear, judicially manageable standards. Um, now, I mean, the Fourth Circuit just reversed that, thank God. Um, but my point is, like, there are, you know, Judge Lee and Judge Wilkinson are not, um, are, they're not on the fringe when it comes to the feelings of federal judges today. And I think that that's a real problem and could be a very real problem in the next, you know, three and 11 twelfths to, to eight years. The funny thing about those kinds of competence arguments is that it kind of presumes that there's something about the judiciary which doesn't, I, it means different things at different times. One thing it might mean is that they just don't have the tools to do a good job figuring out what the right answer is if we believe there were right answers in this kind of field. 
And then secondly, it sometimes stands in as a kind of electoral transparency, electoral accountability type argument. You know, the, the reason judges shouldn't get involved in here is because this is one where there, maybe there's a commitment to other branches, whatever, but, but the other branches are electorally accountable and that's the right way to kind of filter through through this problem. But there's no, there's no reason to think in a case like Abu Ghraib that that latter argument will, is compelling. Um, uh, to the contrary. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You know, talk, yeah. If, if you want to talk about a group with no constituency in the political process, how about non-citizens accused of being terrorism suspects? It, especially when they're detained overseas and no one knows their names and, you know, but, but in, all in, in the any above. event, yeah. yeah. No, so, so I just say all this because I just, you know, I'm very, I mean, part of what makes me, you know, really sort of nervous and, and to tie this back to the four big Supreme Court cases. I mean, in both Abbasi, this is the post 9-11 roundup case, and in Hernandez, the cross-border shooting case, the government has argued that one of the reasons why courts ought not to recognize a damages remedy um, is because of the specter that such damages remedies would interfere with national security. And, you know, it just seems to me that that if you really unpack that argument and take it seriously, that's basically an argument that legal remedies in general um, are, you know, problematic insofar as they interfere with national security. Um, which to me raises very serious rule of law concerns um, and and concerns that are even the more serious where judges are basically saying, yes, the reason why we shouldn't recognize these kinds of remedies is because we don't know how to do it. Yeah, um, that's right. These are the same federal judges who deal with ERISA. <laughs> um, well, I was going to say I was going to say it must arise from this idea that courts, when they get involved, always muck things up and are always a blunt instrument. But we just can't have them doing that here because this is really important. Let daddy take care of national security. And to which my response is, you know, where's the evidence of that? I mean, so, you know, and, 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 you know, and if, and if folks say, well, there haven't been cases, my response is hogwash. I mean, so, you know, there are at least three categories of cases that I think are really powerful evidence of how courts can handle national security cases. Um, the first is, you know, the one context where courts are actually making up or down determinations on whether particular things implicate national security is FOIA, right? Exemption one under FOIA is the only context where courts are being asked as a substantive merits question, is this thing before you something that is properly withheld because it's related to national security or not? Um, and courts do it all the time. And there's no argument we've ever heard that the courts are you know, screwing up the national security exemption in a way that's destroying our national security. Um, the Guantanamo habeas cases, after fighting against jurisdiction because courts couldn't handle these cases, we now have you know nine years of remarkably substantial case law um, arising out of Guantanamo habeas cases where courts have done what courts do. They've taken evidence. They've answered legal questions. They've articulated rules to fill in gaps where Congress failed to provide them. You know, I've been very critical of some of the answers to those questions, but the courts are doing what they do. Um, And then we have criminal prosecutions, right, where you've got tons of sensitive classified material, oftentimes, where you have like a high-profile terrorism case. Um, and courts figure out like how to deal with you know closing the courtroom if they have to, or using something called the silent witness rule, or other you know other ways of of accommodating both the government and the defendant's rights. So I just think this this ethos that it's not a good thing for courts to be involved in this sphere is very dangerous, and and was dangerous before November, 8th, and it's it's terrifying now. <laughs> with respect to the Bivens claims, is there something special about a concern over? not knowing what a damages award might be in the case where there isn't some other exit ramp out of the case? 
Because the the cases you just described wouldn't involve imposing on a on a private party uh, some massive damages award. Although it that's might. right. I mean, so so maybe maybe that is the concern. But it seems like there are two there are two ways to deal with that. I mean, if the concern is the amount of damages, um, you know, cap them. <laughs> I mean, this Which is all you could judgment do law anyway. Yeah. Right. So so if that's the concern, you know, fine. I don't. I'd, I'd much rather have the precedent that says it was a violation of the Fourth Amendment for the government to do X and you get 10 bucks than, oh, you know, because we're not sure what the damages will be, we're not even going to answer the constitutional question. Right. Um, I, so I think the bigger, the, the, the bigger and sort of less sound by the cons, uh, uh, motivation for hostility to Bivens is the deterrence concern. And, and, and Re- Chief Justice Rehnquist talked about this a lot, including, ironically, in Verdugo or Quides, not a Bivens case, um, but the case where the court took a very dim view of the extraterritorial application of the Fourth Amendment to non-citizens. And Rehnquist says one of the real concerns is that, you know, the specter of Bivens could deter government officers from engaging in perfectly constitutional conduct because they're afraid of the lawsuit, right? That Bivens in that context is sort of a, an affront to qualified immunity. D- didn't, didn't Kennedy concur in that case? In Verdugo, yes, although yeah. he didn't talk about the Bivens question at all. No, he, he, but he talked about, that's another case where he, he extends this kind of balancing idea and, and the more, anyway, so, sorry to interrupt. No, no, but, no, yeah. but, Chris, no, but Christian, I mean, Kennedy's concurrence in Verdugo, one of the things that Hernandez, I mean, so, so not to sort of jump all over the map, but in Hernandez, right, where the question what is we do whether, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> I, this is why it's hard to listen to two apps. Um, so, so in Hernandez, where the question is whether an unarmed 15-year-old Mexican standing just across the U.S.-Mexico border is protected by the Fourth Amendment when a border agent standing on U.S. soil shoots him. Um, the, the question as presented in the cert petition on the merits is whether Rehnquist's um, formalistic approach to the Fourth Amendment applies or whether Kennedy's balancing approach applies. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm in this context, even though I can't stand Justice Kennedy, I actually think that we're much better off in his world than in Rehnquist's um, because it at least leaves room for courts to say, listen, we can, in fact, answer these questions. We are capable of resolving these issues. Um, and listen, for, for the you know, three of you who are still listening, hi, mom, um, mm-hmm. right, go read the government's brief in Hernandez. I mean, the government's brief in Hernandez makes all of these interorum arguments about how allowing a you know, constitutional damages remedy in the case of a 15-year-old standing literally adjacent to the border um, would throw open the floodgates so that all foreign relations and national security policies could be reviewed through damages claims that victims of drone strikes would get billions of dollars of damage. I mean, you know, there's got to be a line somewhere that isn't just the border, because we do stuff across the border all the time. Um, and it's got to be the court to answer that question. I guess those are the two, the two big, you know, cash outs. Maybe, maybe, so I had all kinds of stuff I wanted to ask you about. We're not going to get to it. I want to ask you about Sally Yates. I wanted to ask you about Senate Democrats and the Gorsuch nomination. <laughs> but, we still but, haven't talked about the elephant. Well, that's what I, I thought. Maybe since we only have maybe about ten minutes, we should talk about we should talk about the elephant in the room. So I, I want to, can we can we do like a lightning round on Sally Yates and Gorsuch at the well, end? Well, Sally Yates is related to the elephant, I think, right? Yes. Okay. So, oh, Sally Yates and the elephant. By the way, that is, there's the title of this episode. Hey, hey, we're we're the we're the hosts here, dude. <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 get the title down. Don't you worry. I know. All right. Um, <laughs> so so the elephant in the room. So going all the way back to the real constitutional problem with the executive order, and not just the technical problems that arise from how it applies to different classes of immigrants. The real problem is the establishment clause. Um, so you know, establishment clause 101. 
Um, the government is not supposed to be able to prefer some religions over another. They're not supposed to be able to prefer religion over irreligion. Um, and when they do so, the courts are pretty damn skeptical, and for good reason. Um, what makes the Establishment Clause interesting in this context is that, kind of like this Ascension Clause that we were talking about earlier, there's a fairly widespread view that the Establishment Clause is not an individual right, because it's hard to see how it applies to individuals. So how are you or you know, I injured when the government establishes a religion um, as distinct from anybody else in the country? This is part of why the Supreme Court in 1968 held that any taxpayer could have standing to challenge um, a government expenditure on Establishment Clause grounds, because nobody specific would. Um, but more importantly, it suggests that the Establishment Clause constrains the government regardless of who the government is acting against. Mm-hmm. Justice Thomas, I think most importantly, um, is one of the principal proponents of this view on the contemporary court. And guys, it's not hard to imagine that Thomas would find friends on the left for applying the Establishment Clause, um, even where the sort of affected parties are non-citizens with little in the way of other constitutional rights. So then the question becomes, all right, well, does the executive order purport to viol- you know, establish a religion in violation of the Establishment Clause? Um, And in this regard, I think there are two key, well, three key pieces. First, um, it singles out only Muslim-majority countries. Um, Second, it has that exception in Section 7D for religious minorities in those Muslim-majority countries. And third, we have all the public statements, which, I mean, (laughs) I I teach my con law students that the reason why we don't have equal protection and racial discrimination claims anymore is because no one is stupid enough to admit what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I guess that's not true. (laughs) Right. I mean, we have right. We have Rudy Giuliani saying Trump says it's a Muslim ban. Just tell me how I can make it legal. I got in. A, I got in. A, I got in a big Facebook fight with somebody about that. I wouldn't say fight. You know, I I have discussions, and and this person posted the clip, and and said maybe you haven't seen the whole clip because it makes it clear that this was not an effort to ban Muslims. It was about selecting areas, and it, like I, I just couldn't. Like I can't even have that discussion. I mean, once you hear him say that. Uh, Trump asked me to do a Muslim ban, but do it legally. You know, he says legally and, <laughs> and then get, uh, and, and get a commission together and figure out how to do it legally. I mean, it's, it's right. plain as day. Now I don't trust, I don't, I don't trust Rudy Giuliani at all. So maybe he's, he's lying against his own interests, but, but I don't know. But then you have Steve, but then you have Steve Bannon and then you have Trump's own tweet. But guys, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one, yeah. but, but to me, the damning, the most damning two pieces of evidence are not any of these public statements. The most damning two pieces of evidence are the identity of the seven countries, not because they're Muslim-majority countries, there are lots of Muslim-majority countries in the world, but because there is not a single act of terrorism on U.S. soil on or since 9-11 perpetrated by a national of one of those seven countries, right? And so there's a huge false positive problem um, with targeting those seven countries that smells awfully funny. So yeah. that's the and first they tied big it, they, thing. they tied it to the Obama designation of those countries for what is it, non-applicability of the visa waiver program? Yes, but the thing is that in that context, right, the identification of those seven countries was because those were the seven countries where it was identified that you had the greatest frequency, the greatest volume of dual nationals with countries who were part of the visa waiver program, mm-hmm. right? So the concern in that context is you did not want a dual British-Iraqi national um, sneaking through the visa waiver program because of their British passport, right? And in that context, the identification of those seven countries was based upon data unrelated to religion, right? It was based upon just how many people the government was aware of who had those who had dual passports from 
a visa waiver country and one of those seven countries. Um, but leaving that aside, then there's the religious exception. Um, right? I actually think the executive order would actually be much more defensible if it did not have the religious exception, um, which by itself, wholly apart from the anti-Muslim piece of the, of the executive order, might be its own establishment clause violation because the government is exempting from this, you know, let's say otherwise lawful, just assume arguendo, program, um, members of religious minorities. Um, so it seems to me that there's a huge establishment clause problem, regardless of which piece of evidence you find most compelling. And the real question is not whether courts are going to view the executive order as being re- motivated by religious discrimination, but whether they're going to hold that it therefore applies even where it's affecting those without other constitutional protections. And that, to me, is the elephant. And it, it's pretty clearly a, you know, were, these, were this an ordinary application to American citizens of some kind of program, it's a pretty clear free exercise and equal protection violation. Right, because you're, problem also, is that you're those, also punishing Muslims exactly. for, for being Muslim. And in fact, that's the, that, that's the gravamon of the whole problem, the whole moral problem that many of us have with it, right, is that it's targeting Muslims. But the flip side of but that is— But more than that, Christian, but yeah. wait, there's, a, there's a practical problem too. So, so imagine that I am a, a Syrian trying to get around the executive order, right? Um, how am I going to convince the— visa officer or Absolutely. the assigned or the right. right how am i is there a shibboleth where i'm supposed to somehow convince him that i really am a christian as opposed to a muslim um so part of why you know the establishment clause is not just this nice broad theoretical idea the establishment clause is meant to prevent government officers from asking you what is your faith it's to prevent them from having an, from creating an orthodoxy against which you'll be measured that's right. right. And, yeah. and, 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 and making decisions based upon your answer to the question of my faith is X. So I actually think, I mean, ironically, this is, it's, it's never sort of fun to admit this, but I actually think the executive order would have been on much firmer footing without the religious exception. Um, because then you at least avoid the specter of inquiries into faith. And it's at least it purports at that point to be a true national origin driven program. But it's, it's still driven by this like ethnic cleansing purpose. If, if you read in a negative light, as I do, I have to say, the kind of off-the-record commentary by, well, not some of it's on the record, but but some is senior administration officials talking about this kind of multi-generational Islamic neighborhood problem, uh, the ethnic cleansing of the states that Steve Bannon's been on the record uh, talking about before. Like, the, these to me are are very troubling. And even without that exception, you know, even if it's like, even if you don't let in Christians from certain nations, you can accomplish that objective by keeping them out. I, I take um, it, no, I think that's right. I and, take and I it think that then the, the question just becomes, you know, are you really going to find a court that says that's not what this executive order is doing? Okay, well, well here's, a, I suppose here's the reason they might, uh, is they might say, look, none of that applies to non-citizens. Especially not non-citizens who are clause, not present. That's why the establishment clause, rather than free exercise or equal protection. No, that's right. And that's and that's why the real question is, are we if, is this going to be the issue that finally convinces a majority of the Supreme Court to hold that the Establishment Clause is a structural, universal, ubiquitous limit on the federal government? Because if it is, the executive order has big problems. I mean, what if they just came out and said like what if they just came out and said only Christians can be admitted on tourist yeah. visas? Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that, I, 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 Ugh, we lost some good stuff. Doesn't happen very often, but okay, we're going. 
I didn't say anything important while in, in the part we lost. <laughs> what we were talking about, I mean, what we were talking about was the 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 kind of structural version of the establishment clause. The um, the the hypo I just came up with about Christians, the ban on on Christians uh, on non Christians coming in on tourist visas would really test the idea, right, as to whether you think there are no structural limitations on. Uh, on the way the executive can administer and, and frankly yeah. and the executive order may, may i mean i'm not sure that the executive order is that far removed from that hypothetical um especially because of how it's written and structured now i guys i think the real question is between now and when this case gets up to you know the courts that are going to matter is the executive order revised do they add countries to the list that are not muslim majority countries just for the sole purpose of immunizing themselves from this claim um and and would that be enough to do it i mean i think you know We've already seen that they're they're moving on the, they're adjusting on the fly, and so there's going to be also this problem of litigating against a moving target. But it, it does raise this larger question. I mean, because Justice Thomas is, I think, the principal proponent of the structural and therefore universal view of the Establishment Clause, it, it does raise this interesting question, Christian, that you are getting into about where Justice Thomas is vis-a-vis the Trump ban and agenda, right? This is what we lost. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and, and whether, but, but I think, I, I actually think this is a question no one's talked about enough, which is, you know, Gorsuch, I mean, let's be frank, in almost every respect that matters, I think it's fair to expect Gorsuch to vote fairly consistently with the way Scalia would have, with maybe a couple of interesting exceptions at the margins, the big one being administrative law. Mm-hmm. Um, the real question, if, if we get to a point where there's another nominee, where the balance of the court might actually meaningfully tip, where you know, President Trump is replacing um, a Justice Kennedy or a Justice Ginsburg, um, then all of the eyes would shift to the Chief Justice, I think, and Justice Thomas. Um, At which point the question becomes, listen, you know, yes, they are dyed-in-the-wool conservatives. Yes, they are passionate believers in the modern, you know, federal society Republican agenda. But are there lines that Trump is crossing that they won't? Um, And, you know, it seems to me that Justice Thomas because of his, frankly, guys, you know, at times admirable and at times completely um, horrifying commitment to principles, um, <laughs> right? Could be, could be the, could be the, the key, the key vote um, in in cases we haven't even thought of yet, where the Trump administration is really trying to go off the deep end. And, and what I was asking in the in the portion that we missed, that, that where the recording cut out, was. We just don't know. We look just look at the conservative landscape right now. Is he with David Frum and Bill Kristol? In which case, everything this executive order looks complete. You know, looks a certain way. Or is he on board with the Trump train? And or 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 is he just skeptical that the Trump Bannon project is quite as you know uh, is quite as fascistic and as maybe I see it is. I I don't know where he stands. And and then we were asking like you know what is that. What does that mean? Like, what? How does that translate? Uh, I mean, I mean, I think I, I certainly don't think that that Justice Thomas is getting his, you know, news from Slate and Think Progress um, and Huffington Post. Um, you know, I, I mean, I, I suspect that he probably reads, you know, Breitbart, Drudge, and that stuff. Um, I, I just don't know the answer yet because we haven't, you know, there haven't been issues that would have raised that distinction previously. But, you know, guys, I think we should all buckle up because they're coming. It's a new world. It's a new world. Well, and, and, and not is it a new world, but it's a new court. Um, you know, I don't think the remarkable thing about 
challenges to the rule of law and challenges to the separation of powers is that at least historically they have not split the court along partisan lines. Um, and you've actually seen the emergence of distinctions between folks who are more committed to judicial supremacy versus folks who are more committed to, you know, substantive doctrines of restraint or states' rights or vice versa. Um, that's what we're going to have to figure out now, right? I mean, where is the, with or without Judge Gorsuch, you know, depending upon where he fits in, where's the center of a court that's not being asked to decide about affirmative action or abortion, but is being asked to decide about whether a president can basically commit the United States to a incredibly nationalist, perhaps even racist and anti-ethnic series of programs um, that are deeply inconsistent with our traditions. And I don't know that that's 5-4. I mean, if it's 5-4, I don't know that it's the same 5-4. and four. Well, on that delightfully happy note, we got we, we to gotta cut it off. Um, I know you've got stuff to do as well, Steve, so, but thank you so much again for enlightening us. And people who want more Steve Laddick are now going to get it on a regular basis. <laughs> All I'll say is it's, it's, it's almost always a pleasure, guys, but, but the last 12 days have been exhausting. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, uh, the pit in my stomach that won't go away. Buckle up. Hmm. Listen, right. I mean, the, 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 my one, the, the, one, the one thing that allows me to sleep at night is my whole sort of broader agenda throughout my whole career from a sort of academic perspective has been the reinvigoration of an aggressive judicial role. Donald Trump may be the best thing for that. He certainly raises the stakes. Yep. So we'll see. <laughs> All right. Thanks a bunch, Steve. Thank you, Steve. Thanks, guys.